Hey, we're starting a brand new series that we are calling Greater. Somebody say Greater. During the series, we're going to be going through the book of Colossians uh, to find out what the writers, Paul and Timothy, had to say to these believers. You know, it's really interesting, but there was temptation, paganism, and false teaching surrounding this church. And the writer's central theme as they speak to these people is this. It's that God is greater than everything that surrounds you. Now, I don't know if you've caught that revelation or not, but uh, when you realize that God is greater than everything around you, there's no reason to fear. There's no reason to worry because God is greater. Can I get an amen? amen. So it's so true today that even though this church thousands of years ago was dealing with these tempting challenges around them, that the 21st century church faces much of the same things that the church in Colossae faced. And I think that it's so applicable to us today. And I wonder what the Holy Spirit might say to us as we journey through this book. And I want to remind you of something. Last week, I encourage you to make sure to take notes um, during the message. And when something sticks out to you, circle it, write it down, put a star by it, highlight it, circle it in red, do whatever you need to do just to make sure that you can remember when it's all said and done. Hey, this is something that the Holy Spirit has spoken on. And I don't know what he's poking on, but I'm going to listen to him here. And I wonder what he has to say to me. And so make sure with that, Pastor Bruce said, download the sermon notes. But I want to encourage you, get the sermon notes. If you don't have them, we've got note, paper notes out in the, in the lobby. When you come in on Sundays, grab one of those so that you can take notes. Because how many of you know, most of us, we hear a message and at lunchtime, we're like, man, it was a great message. What did the pastor say? I don't know, but it was just really good. So let's not be that kind of a church. Let's be a church who knows what God is doing in our hearts. How many of you agree with me? The key verse in this book is found in Colossians 1 and 17. And this is a declaration to the church. And here's what it reads. It says this, and he, Jesus, was before all things. And in Jesus, all things are held together. This is the reason why the world can go round and round and round and you and I don't blow up into a million pieces because literally the king of the universe, Jesus, holds us all together. And it continues and it says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. That in everything, he might be preeminent. The preeminence of Christ is just a theological phrase that describes this, that Christ Jesus surpasses everything. He surpasses all other world systems around him because he is greater. Somebody say greater. So that's why we're calling this series greater because the authors and writers of this book are helping this church to see that Jesus stands far above and far separate and superior to all things. Would you open your Bibles to Colossians chapter one? We're going to go through verse one through eight today as we uh, step into the message and here's what it says. We'll be reading from the New Living Translation. It says this. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and from our brother Timothy. We, Timothy and Paul, are writing to God's holy people in the city of Colossae who are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. May our God and Father give you grace and peace. We always pray for you and we give thanks to God 
for the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all of God's people, which come from your confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. You've had this expectation ever since you first heard the truth of the good news. This same good news came to you and it's going all over the world and it's bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives just as it changed your lives from the day you first heard and understand the truth about God's wonderful grace. And you learned about this good news from Epaphras, our beloved coworker. He is Christ's faithful servant and he's helping us on your behalf. He's told us, about all of the love you have for others and the Holy, that, that the Holy Spirit has given you. Let's pray. Father, we love you today and we thank you for who you are. We ask that your word, God, would fall like seeds into our heart today. That we would say to you today, God, that we surrender to everything you have to say. And God, we know that heart work and life transformation only comes from one place, and it comes from you. And so today, we just invite you, Holy Spirit, to speak to us in Jesus' name. Somebody say a loud and rowdy amen. That's pretty good for the nine o'clock service. So today, I want to introduce this book to you from kind of a thousand foot view as we crack open the first eight verses of this book. Here's what I observe as we look at these opening verses. First, I observe the period, the period. I observe the time period and I notice that there's several historical facts about this book that help give us a lot of context when it comes to understanding what's happening in this church. Well, first of all, when was this letter written in your notes? This letter was written around 60 AD. This means it was written about 27 years after the resurrection of Jesus. Now, this would be an indication to us that this was written during the New Covenant period. The New Covenant had already taken place. And who was this book written to? Well, hello, newsflash, it is in the title of the book. This letter was written to the church in Colossae in your notes. You know, there's a famous story by the American author Mark Twain called The Prince and the Pauper. And in the story, a prince invites a poor beggar uh, into his castle. And for fun, the two of them decide, hey, let's exchange clothes. As the story goes on, the beggar is mistaken for the prince and is kept in the castle and lives the life of a prince. But the prince is mistaken for the beggar. And he's thrown out of the castle. Now, if the prince knew that he would risk being thrown out of his own home, his castle, I'm sure he would have never agreed to change clothes with the beggar. Dabbling in such fun could never be worth losing so much. And in some ways, the situation in the city of Colossae during the first century resembles this very story. The Christians in Colossae were being tempted to exchange their greater privileges in Christ for practicing pagan forms of worship. What do we know about the town of Colossae? We don't really know a lot. There's not a lot in scripture and in archaeological records. We do know that the, the city was not a very large city. And during the time it was written, it was on economic decline. So, you know, it was a struggling rural town. How about that? And today, if it was still here, it would be near modern Turkey. 
And who were the people in Colossae? What were they? What were they? What was their ethnicity? Colossians 3 tells us that it was a church predominantly full of Gentiles, meaning that they were non-Jewish people. However, in this town, there was a large population of Jews. They just weren't all up in this specific church. Who wrote this letter and how did it get to the Colossians in your notes? This letter was written, as we saw in the opening verses, by Paul and Timothy. And this letter was actually delivered to this church by a guy named Tychicus. We see that later on in Colossians chapter 4. So Paul was not the one who actually hand-delivered this letter. He actually sent somebody on his behalf to deliver this letter. And Colossians 4 tells us that, that this man, Tychicus, was a dear brother in the faith. So he was just telling the church, hey, in other words, guys, trust Tychicus. He's one of our dear brothers in Christ. Well, who planted this church? Who's responsible for this church plant? Scripture tells us in your notes this church was planted by a guy named Epaphras. In Colossians 1 and 7, it says this, it says, just as you, Colossians church, he's speaking to them, just as you learned it from Epaphras, he was talking about the gospel, so just as you learned about the gospel of Jesus Christ from Epaphras, see, this church was only about five years old when Paul had written this letter, and uh, this church was a baby church, think about it, and there were a lot of new believers in this church. And how many know that it takes a lot of years of discipleship to work the junk out of us? Can I just see anybody wave their hand and just admit in humility, it takes a lot of years for stuff to get worked out of us. Paul himself had never actually been to this church. He'd never visited this church, and we know this from Colossians 2. But it amazes me that one of the greatest apostles who ever lived decided to grab his disciple Timothy and pay special attention to this little church in Colossae. Why was this written? We heard a little bit about this, but in your notes, this letter was written to address the good and troubling news that came to Paul. Paul had been in prison and Epaphras had come to Paul and delivered some news about the church that he had planted because he had most likely heard about the gospel Epaphras through Paul's ministry. So he comes to give Paul a report and there's good news and there's troubling news. What was the troubling news? The troubling news is most commonly known as the Colossian heresy. What's heresy? Heresy is this. It's when somebody mixes uh, religious ideas and secular teachings together that stand equal or over and against the teachings of Jesus and the apostles. And that's what was happening in this church in Colossae. And that's the report that Epaphras brought to Paul. So he's telling Paul, Paul, listen, we planted this church. People said, yes, we're going to follow Jesus. But they came into the church with so much stuff in their life. And they're, they're mixing all kinds of things with the world. And, and the Jews are in around our community. And they're, they're mixing Jewish religion into the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they're struggling. And we need some help. I'm going to be an equal opportunity offender here today because this mixture that was happening in the church in Colossae is a lot like the mixture that happens today in the church in our modern times. What does mixture do? Mixture dilutes. Mixture waters down and, and it takes away the full effect and the power of something like the message of the gospel. And what could mixture look like for us today? 
Mixture could look like this. It could look like the mixture of pluralism with Jesus. Pluralism is just this. It's by adding other beliefs and philosophies and values and and bringing them into the message of the gospel in such a way that they're equal or they're more important than the message of Jesus. And here's the reality. If people know more about your philosophical beliefs than they do your theological beliefs, you might be in mixture. It could be the mixture of nationalism and Jesus. I told you I was an equal opportunity offender. We do this by adding our national identity with our Christian identity. And we set them equal. And sometimes we set them above our Christian identity. And I want to be clear about this. Our country of origin, whether you're from Africa or America, our country of origin is a gift from God. And our ethnicity is a gift from God. But the moment we put our nation and our ethnicity at an equal playing field or above the message of Jesus Christ and our identity in Christ, we might be in mixture. Here's the reality. If people know more about your political beliefs and your ethnic traditions than your love for Jesus, you might be in mixture. Then there perhaps could be the mixture of legalism and Jesus. See, the Jews were coming into this church and they would commonly push their laws and their prohibitions on the local believers as demands for salvation and maintaining their salvation. So these people were bringing this stuff in and accepting it, and they were in mixture. So, if people know more about what you're against than what you're for, you might be in mixture. So Paul and Timothy wrote this letter because the Colossians, they failed to see Christ as greater than the things that they were mixed up in. As greater than the philosophies, as greater than the religious ideas and do's and don'ts and laws. What's the good news that was brought to Paul about this church? We'll talk a lot more about that through this message. But how can we apply what we know so far about the church in Colossae? What does all this mean for us today in your notes? It means this, that we must be careful when living in the world that we're not of the world. And that was the message to this church that Paul brought to them. He said, hey, church. Be careful that as you're in the world, you're not living like the world. And make sure that everybody understands that Christ is greater in your life than anything else, including family, including your values, including your moral stand, including all of the things, because we all have a different set of moral standards. And we all, depending on what we're tempted with and depending on what is really easy for us to overcome, we have a hierarchy and a pecking order of our moral standards. And, and, and Paul is coming along and saying, make sure that Christ is greater than even all of those things. The book of Colossians is so relevant to us today. Can you see why? And here's a question for us. Are the lines clear between you and the world around you? Are the lines clear between Christ in your life and the other things that you're mixed up in? Because we're in the world, not of the world. Do people know more about your love for Jesus and what you're for than they know about your politics and what you're against? We're talking about greater hope today, greater hope. Today, we're looking at this book from a thousand foot view. Next, I observe this. I observe the posture. What is Paul and Timothy's posture towards this church 
who is on the edge of being involved in so much mixture that perhaps maybe you can't even see Christ in them anymore. What is Paul and Timothy's posture towards this church? In your notes, their posture is seen in their attitude. Let's take a look at this. In their attitude, verse 2a, the beginning of this, of this verse, it says this. They write, to God's holy people in the city of Colossae who are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. So interesting to me. I don't know that I would put that in the very beginning of my letter to a people who's teetering on the fence as much as the church of Colossae. But Paul and Timothy seem to think that it's really important. So although this church is in mixture, the writer's attitudes remain positive towards these people. And in fact, he addresses them as holy and as faithful. Now, how could he call these people holy and faithful, knowing all of the missteps that they're caught up in? How is that possible? It's because this recognition of holiness is not about their moral excellence. It is about their position in Christ as followers of Jesus. They have been made holy in Christ in their faithfulness because they have not let go of the message of Jesus. They're still holding on. It might not be by a full fist or two hands, but it's by a pinky. And I think if we all would really understand, we're really not the ones who are holding on to Jesus. He's the one holding on to us. And that's why we have hope anyways. In your notes, their posture is also seen in their attitude. Paul and Timothy paid special, paid special attention as to how they were going to address these people. See, they could have addressed them as the, as he addressed the Gentiles and, and address all their problems. But we notice that Paul doesn't spend a lot of time addressing their problems. Rather, he spends time addressing their solution. Now, we know Paul's not a pushover. And we know he's going to address all of the news that he heard. But before he does in this letter, he makes sure to encourage them with the hope of the gospel. Check out how he does this in the second part of verse 2, verse 2b. Here's what he says. He says, he's finishing off the opening of his letter. And he says, may the God of our Father give you grace and peace. He's letting this church know that the message of the gospel that started you off, remain in it. And he's declaring over them, make sure you understand and know that the grace and peace of God is more than enough for you, even church, as you're struggling as new believers, and some of you are struggling in your mixture, God will help you, he will make a way, he will, he will give you peace in the ways that you should walk, and you won't have peace in the ways that you shouldn't walk. And when you're leaning towards the ways that you shouldn't walk and there's no peace and you're, you're finding, trying to, to reach out for all kinds of different things and worldly philosophies and worldly ideas and worldly religion to give you that peace, let that be a signal flag to you when you're reaching and you're trying to find peace in all the wrong ways that God is saying, hey, son, hey, daughter, you're not ever going to find peace over there. But when you come and you pull back close into the message of the gospel, you'll have all the peace that you need. He's saying, remember, there is greater hope when our feet are founded on the message of the peace of God and the grace of God. No doubt Paul and Timothy were very uh, uh, positive. Their posture was positive. Their attitude was strong towards these people. And they wanted to see this little church in this small, dying, rural town clinging onto the hope that they had from the very beginning. And that is the good news of Jesus. 
He seems to be so focused about what is right with them, not what is wrong with them. I believe this is why Paul says this in verse number three. He tells the church, listen, we always pray for you. And we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for you. Paul is saying, friends, we're with you in prayer. I mean, you may be out there struggling, and I have never met you before, but I want you to know the church is praying for you. I want you to know that you are not alone. And I want you to know that even in your struggle and even in your mixture, we're so grateful and thankful for what God is doing in your life. We don't forget what he's doing in you. How can we apply this? How can we apply Paul's posture and Timothy's posture towards this church who's struggling like the Colossians? In your notes, the answer is not more determination, but more discovery of the grace and peace available in Christ. When people are struggling, the answer is to not put more demands on them and tell them to be more determined and tell them to get it together and do more and be more and work more and blah, blah, blah. The answer, Paul is coming to this church and he's saying, the answer is more discovery about the wonderful God that we serve. Yeah. See, when you get the news of somebody who's struggling, the question for us, and perhaps it's you who's struggling, do you apply more determination and more works or do you apply more discovery about what God has done and who he is and what he has accomplished in your life? Because friends, I'm telling you, there is no hope in more determination and more effort, but there is great hope found in the message of Jesus Christ. And if you could discover that, you will have all the hope you need to make it through in this life. And don't hear what I'm not saying today. I'm not saying that it will never require work from us. But that work and that consistency from us will be a byproduct of what happens when we discover who Christ really is for our life. So we will do work and we're going to work really hard. But it will be a byproduct of Jesus transforming your life. It never goes in reverse order. Never, ever, ever. I work harder than I've ever worked in my life. I'm more focused than I've ever been on my life. It's not because I'm more focused on my work. It's because I'm more focused on Christ. And he's producing a good work in me. I can't boast in that. I, I've never been able to have these kind of disciplines in my life. I've never been this focused in my life. I've never been so intentional in, in handling business the way that I'm handling business right now. It's not because I'm great. It's not because I'm so disciplined. It's because of the work of Christ in me. I mean, just ask my family. Ask my parents. I mean, they know everything about me. Ask my wife. She's known me for over 20 years. She knows that it's the work of Christ in me. We're talking about greater hope today, and we're looking at an introduction of this letter. And so far, we've looked at the period of history. We looked at the, the posture of the writers. And lastly, I want to observe the perception. What is the writer's perception of these people? We know they got a good attitude towards these people, but what do they actually think? What is their perception of this church, this struggling church and mixture? Let's continue to read in verse number four. Here's what they say. They say, for we have heard of your faith in Jesus Christ. They trust Epaphras. I mean, Epaphras and Paul have a relationship. And he knows that when Epaphras comes and reports on this church that it's true and what he says is right. And so Paul believes everything that is said about this struggling church. And he speaks back to them. He said, I have heard of your faith. In your notes, we notice a perception of faith. 
Epaphras didn't just bring bad news about this church, but he also brought good news about their faith. And he says, Paul says, you are a faithful church. I see that you're still holding on to the gospel of Jesus Christ, regardless of the unpleasant news I've heard about you. Sometimes when we get unpleasant news, that's the only thing we focus on. And we get tunnel vision. And we fail to see any other good in a thing because all we see is the bad. And that's not the type of leader that Paul was. He said, I see your faith. He continues and it says this in the latter part of verse four. He says, and we've also heard about your love for all of God's people. So this church who's in mixture, all kinds of mixture, they're faithful. They're also displaying the fruits of the spirit of love. And they're not only loving some, but they're actually really good at loving all of God's people. In your notes, we also see this perception of love. It's so amazing to me that Paul does not have tunnel vision and Timothy does not have tunnel vision, that they see the good that is taking place in this church. It's apparent that this church, as messed up as they are, I mean, not, not the grace place, of course. Not you, of course. I mean, you're not that messed up, but they were. As messed up as they were, they apparently were still really good at loving each other. This group of churchgoers mixed up in all these secular philosophies and, and Jewish religion and pagan ideas, they were, their heirs were not blinded in the eyes of the writers. And he still brings them some good news. It's so funny that this church is a lot like churches today. They've got some good and they've got some bad. There's some people in the church that's grabbed onto the gospel. They got saved and they just went running. And there's others who grabbed onto the gospel and they are just limping along. And the writers recognize this and they see this. And it's obvious that the people in this church, within this little community, they were on different pages. But yet it seems that their love was indiscriminate towards one another while they were on different pages. You got to know where I'm going with this. See, love for those who are different from us, Christian or not, is so counter to human nature. This is why there's racism, sexism, classism, and all kinds of other isms. It's because we allow difference to cause division rather than reconciliation in Christ. See, Christ came to take away the lines that divide us and put us under something greater than any ism that is on this planet. And that's why we can have greater hope in Christ because Christ is greater than any ism. And when we let isms divide us, it's almost as if we jump into the mixture with the philosophies of isms and we go, oh, mm, Christ is not greater than that. I see myself as better than these people. Christ is a great equalizer. Hello. When you remove Christ from the equation, we're, it's all equal. We're all a mess. We're all doomed for hell. We're all headed there really fast. And without Christ, we're nothing. Even the greatest apostle who ever lived said, I'm nothing without Christ. Think about it. Jesus did the exact opposite of what we do in our human nature. Jesus lived in a perfect place called heaven. And he crossed over the dividing line to step into our world of mixture. 
and get all up in it and get all messy and get all nasty and get all dirty. In fact, so messed up by the sins of humanity that he bore the sins of humanity on himself. And he walked into a hostile world. For Jesus, this was literally a suicide mission. Yet here we are crossing over the divided lines into our culture and we're going to war with everybody and we're not willing to die for nothing and put our life down and willing to take it like Jesus did. And he steps into the world. And instead of going to war, he lays his life down. But our arms are up and we're going to battle over every ism that we disagree with. That's not how Jesus did it, my friends. Romans 12, 18, Paul says, there's a better way. There's a better way to do this, church. He says, if possible, so as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I can't help but to think that there are some people who disagree with this, with the word of God. Live peaceably with all. But what about the lines? What about, what about, what about the differences? Shouldn't I, shouldn't I, shouldn't I? Sure you should, but your first thing shouldn't be to go correct all of that. Your first thing should be to go in and love like the church of Colossians. In other words, don't be antagonistic. Don't be an intentional aggravator. If it is within your power, live at peace. Now, you can't do anything that happens beyond that. Whatever else happens, that happens. You can't control that. But you can control you. Why did they have so much indiscriminate love for people? Verse 5 tells us where this, this power, this type of love comes from. Verse 5 says this. This love, which comes from your confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. This church knows that there's an indiscriminate love because they have a confident hope in what Christ did in their life and their future heaven. They know that if God could do it in me, who is a person all caught up in the world, he can definitely do it with them. If the message of love can come from the, one of the greatest apostles who ever lived, the apostle Paul, and Epaphras could get saved, and he can come to this community and share the message of gospel and peace, and people can get saved and their lives can be transformed but he could do that for me surely he could do that with a person who thinks differently from you I mean think about how differently you were I mean you weren't all that and if you were all that it's because God saved your mommy and daddy it's because you by the grace of God didn't have to grow up in all that and you didn't have to deal with all that junk that is the grace of God on your life And we ought to recognize that as believers, especially if you grew up in a Christian home and you got it good. Well, I was never like that. Thank God for that. Thank God that generation after generation after generation, people have served Jesus. Paul and Timothy really believed this encouraging approach to ministry. I know that's really hard for us to hear sometimes. No doubt, there were times that he came down strong, but in this chat, in this instance, he was so positive. He was like just gushing over this church. I mean, think about it. He, he's saying, church, lean into the grace and peace of God. He's saying, I see your faith. I see your love. I see your confident hope in heaven. Don't quit. Don't give up. I know how difficult it is to grow up as a young believer in a world of so much picture, but I, I want you to know that just keep your hope and faith in Christ. He will transform you and make something different about you. And he continues in verse five and it says, you have had this expectation 
ever since you first heard the truth. And Paul just keeps going on. It's like, Paul, are you done like encouraging these people? Paul's like, no. He said, I want you to know that from the moment you were saved five years ago, when I heard that Epaphras started this church over here, from the moment that you were saved, the news that I heard about you is that you have not let up on your expectations of what Jesus Christ can do through the truth of the gospel. I mean, he's just like going in hard on them. How can we apply Paul and Timothy's perception towards others who are struggling like the Colossians? What might the Holy Spirit be saying to us today? In your notes, I believe that he might be saying to us today that the gospel is focused on affirming the truth, not about combating errors. And that was the mentality that Paul and Timothy had as they approached this truth, this church. They were affirming the truth of the gospel that this church knew. He wasn't so interested in combating every single error that he was seeing. He's going to get to those things. But right now in this, in this moment as he enters, see, you can never combat the errors unless you love somebody well. Unless you have loved somebody well on the other side of the fence, you ought to keep your mouth closed. And I know that's really strong. But no one's going to take correction from you unless they know you love them. And Jesus displayed his love. He said a lot of bold things, but he displayed it because he left a perfect world and crossed over the line into our world. And he displayed his love by dying on the cross for us. So unless you've died on the cross for anybody lately, you might want to be careful how you talk to them. There's a time to combat error. I'm not saying that. But if I'm honest, the human nature is to be combative more than it is to love. You know, when people are getting saved and they're entering to the church, things can get really messy. And, and I close with this. Are you more focused on combating error that you are forgetting to love people? Combat air, go for it. Love them first. Show them the love of Christ first. Don't try to battle their values. You're going to lose. And here's what it looks like when you lose. They don't see the love of Christ. And your attitude. And the way you present him. The question for us today is, who are you finding yourselves being combative with? Or what people group in the world of isms are you finding yourself being combative with? I'm going to give you 10 seconds right now to just close your eyes and think about this. And as the Holy Spirit speaks to you, I want you to ask him, am I combative with anybody, any person, any group? And if you are, just write it down in your notes. Write their name, write the group down. If you're embarrassed to write it down, just like write code so nobody can see or know what you're writing. And don't hear what I'm not saying today. Nowhere does Paul and Timothy ever affirm any of the behavior that is coming out of their life of mixture. I didn't say that. And neither did Paul. He simply is, he loved them well, but they also disagreed with some of their ways. We must understand that loving does not always mean agreeing. In fact, I love my wife and she loves me. Guess what? 
we don't always agree with each other. And I don't go, I knew it. You had some kind of agenda. I knew it. You really didn't love me. You're so fake. You're a hypocrite. You're the worst wife on the planet. No. In fact, you do the same thing. And you've got friends that you say, I love you and I've got great affection for you. But I don't believe everything that you believe. And that's okay. I can still love you. And just because I love you doesn't mean that I agree with everything about you. See, Jesus felt affection for the world that he loved and he never affirmed their sin. And I'm gonna say this next part with calmness and chillness. Our culture is so obsessed with tolerance. We have turned and twisted the meaning of this word tolerance to mean I must agree, accept, and approve everything about you. I don't agree, accept, and approve everything about my wife. And I love her more than any of you. I don't agree, accept, and approve everything about myself. And I love my wife. And I love myself who I am in Christ. Tolerance simply means that we have a disagreement and we agree to disagree in a respectful way. And we can still find a way to love. Love is what made Jesus leave the earth for all the horrible sinners. And I know there's some people out there that say humanity is totally depraved and I totally agree with that. But there's also people out there that saying God doesn't love you at all because you're saying that he loves sinners. No, that's, that's not what I'm saying. God actually doesn't love sin. He loves sinners a lot. And he's driven by that love. When I don't respect your value and I don't agree with your value, I can still respect you as a human and love you like Jesus. Here's the reality. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter your belief system. People will disagree with you. They will vote against you because they disagree with you. And you will vote against me because you disagree with me. And when I get to be in power, you're oppressed. And when you get to be in power, my ideas are oppressed. That's how it works. But we cannot expect people who don't share our faith and worldview to agree or affirm our faith and our worldview. How ridiculous is that? And sometimes as believers, we get so mad and angry at the world because they don't affirm your Jesus. They don't affirm our God, the one that we serve. They just don't. I mean, what do you expect from people? They don't agree. And how are you towards others when you disagree with them? The same way they are towards you, probably. Let me remind you, if possible, so far as it depends with you, live peaceably with all. Paul says, if it depends on you, take the high road if you can. If it depends on you, control your tongue if you can. If it depends on you, love if you can. If it depends on you, spread the message of the gospel if you can. If it depends on you, live at peace with people if you can. Today, we're talking about greater hope because there is greater hope for the church and there is greater hope for the world. Just like it was for the church in Colossians, it is for us today.